there's no rule book of what to do and something about me. I like doing things where there is no rule book. That's the voice of Clive Morris, CEO of Innovata, headquartered in Cambridge, UK. Listen in now to hear my conversation with Clive, his thoughts about leadership in biotech and advances in non-invasive liquid biopsy to unlock genomic information and guide personalized cancer treatment. I'm John Simboli. You're listening to BioBoss. Today I'm speaking with Clive Morris, CEO of Innovata, headquartered in Cambridge, UK, with facilities in Research Triangle Park, North Carolina. Clive, welcome to BioBoss. Thank you, John. Pleasure to be here. Clive, how did you find yourself as CEO at Innovata? I've actually been with Innovata now for just over four years and actually initially joined as Chief Medical Officer. I'm a clinician by training and have held uh, various different roles uh, and I was intrigued by the potential for circulating tumor DNA and Innovata specifically, thought a great company to join. So I joined, as I say, about four years ago and then about two years ago now I took on the CEO role. And when you joined, was it at that point in your career when you were sifting a hundred different opportunities and thinking, well, this looks like the right one, or was it more the case of, huh, this presents itself rather clearly? Probably a, a combination of both of those things is, is the honest answer. So, um, you know, I, I'm always sort of looking around in terms of, you know, very exciting sort of areas and technologies and companies. I've spent a long time, a large part of my career in large companies, in large biopharma. Uh, so I had a lot of great experiences there. Um, but it was clear for, at the time I joined Innovata, I was really looking for a small company role, small dynamic, something really innovative and something quite frankly challenging. So something that not only that I hadn't done before, but quite frankly, nobody had done before would be great. So there's no rule book of what to do. And it's something about me. I like doing things where there is no rule book. So when I came across, I, you know, came across Innovata, I was aware of circulating tumor DNA from my time in large pharma um, and liquid biopsies. But at the time, we're very much sort of, you know, breaking science, not really established and, you know, like the area as I looked at it as both a clinician and a drug developer, I thought if, if there's an area that's going to explode, you know, this, this has got to be the potential for helping patients is huge. Um, bit of a departure for me. I'd spent most of my time in therapeutics developments. Um, so to work in the diagnostic side of things uh, was a challenge. And the fact that there weren't any CTDNA products out on the market at that point, and you were still very early on and just saw a great opportunity to shape something here that could really help patients. And met the team, some great people, some fantastic scientists in the early team um, at the time. And uh, yeah, I was employee number 11, I think, when I joined the company. So fairly early on. And um, yeah, you know, the hunch proved correct. And, you know, we've now got our first product on the market in the US, fully reimbursed and helping patients with lung cancer, which is fantastic. My understanding is that you are a physician by training and that I imagine that the opportunity to get a little closer to the lives of patients must have been appealing as well. I trained as well, a general uh, medical training and then I was a surgeon by training and did GI surgery and then um, I spent a bit of time in oncology and then I joined the biopharma industry. <laughs> longer than I'd like to admit to go now. So quite a while, best part of two decades ago. Um, and actually, I've had a great time actually working across Europe and also in the US and groups out in Asia at times as well. So, you know, most of that time in oncology, but a little bit of time elsewhere, but done everything from what we now call translational science through to, you know, very much, um, you know, commercial stage projects and everything in between investor relations. And it's one of the wonderful things about working in a large company is there's many different places that you can really develop your skill sets. So, you know, whether you want to be very technical and deep or broad, 
know, there's a lot of a lot of good uh, aspects of working in the companies. So, you know, I spent best part of 15 years in the large pharma industries, learned an awful lot. Um, but it was hankering after that sort of small company experience of, you know, something that was, you know, a little more dynamic, something that, you know, sort of actually not being a specialist and being more of a generalist. And, you know, I enjoy that of, you know, every day is different of, you know, and almost, you know, while there is a calendar sort of generally the end of the day, the day has looked very different from what it looked like at the beginning of the day because there's always things cropping up. And I just like that variety and, you know, ability to, you know, I guess. Either be helpful or I'll stick my nose in, depending on who you ask to, in a whole, whole host of different areas. I've talked to a couple of CEOs who said they were ready to make that move from big pharma to running a smaller company. And yet, in a very positive way, similar to what you just said, they, there's, I remember a couple of CEOs remarked something like, I did get training in leadership, which turned out to actually be very helpful once I got underway having to run the show. Was that your experience as well? So there's a lot of good things with with biopharma, not just the type of opportunities or the types of roles, but yeah, leadership development. So um, I was fortunate to have gone through various talent development programs, you know, did a range of courses. I did a Harvard senior leadership course sort of as part of that, amongst other things. I did an MBA along the way as well. So, you know, got a lot of very good training, which I like to think of the particular pharma also benefited from at the time from those things, clearly. Um, but I think also along with the experience and, you know, managing groups of different sizes and interacting internationally and, you know, different cultures from working with scientists through to people in sales and marketing. You know, they have different cultures in the different groups, but also different geographies and fantastic learning environment for that, both the formal and the informal training. How did you decide you wanted to lead a biopharma company? And I think the key word there is lead. I've always liked to to be able to get things done and like to take on challenges. And, you know, I think it's that you sort of naturally gravitate towards those leadership roles rather than sort of cookie cutter, follower process type roles. Um, so, you know, I'd like to do that. And I, I like to be able to make an impact and actually see something that at the end of the day, you know, has made a difference. And, um, you know, we think through, you know, what we've done at Innovata here now, that the fact that, you know, there are patients with advanced lung cancer who've had our liquid biopsy technologies, who've been spared invasive tissue biopsies and other things. So, you know, they get the results, they get the required therapies, and they, they save the um, the side effects and the discomfort of those biopsies. You know, it's, it's very tangible in terms of helping patients. It's, it's not quite the same as sitting across the desk or across the bed uh, in the physician sense, but, you know, what you lose in that sense, I gain by just the potential breadth of the numbers of patients who can be helped by the technology. So um, I just think about it as helping patients in a different way. What were you hoping to achieve at Innovata that you felt you couldn't achieve someplace else? What was the specific draw? I think it was a mix. I think it was, you know, looking for a role, you know, exciting, dynamic, you know, a small company environment, you know, in terms of, um, you know, uh, having a broad role across many different areas, you know, I think is appealing. And I think sort of the transformational nature of the technology and the platform that we were developing and, you know, I think the, the ability to, to be able to bring that to patients, but also to have felt of having made a big impact in that of not being a little cog in a big, very big wheel of actually, you know, I think in a small company, successes and, and failures are magnified that, you know, sort of you, you get to sort of share in the highs, but, you know, you, the lows also come with that if you're not successful. And, you know, I think that opportunity to make that impact and particularly to do it in, in a field that, you know, hadn't been done before. So, you know, I think that's a particularly challenging, you know, thing to do. But knowing at the end of the day that, you know, there's the goal there about getting this technology to patients, 
And the other part I find you know, fascinating as well, coming from the pharma industry, where the life cycles tend to be very long from finding the discovery through to ultimately getting the, you know, the innovation through to patients at the back end. It's much quicker, of course, in you know diagnostics and technology. So um, you know the company was only founded five years ago, yet our first product is now reimbursed on the market. Um, so you know, and it's it's actually much more you know much more immediate in that sort of effect, and I think that's useful as well. So when people say, Clive, what do you do for a living? I start with, and it's interesting, the vision you know, we have as a company that we put in place was transforming the lives of patients with cancer through the power of liquid biopsy. So I think of it quite simply as we help make cancer, cancer patients better. Yeah, so that's the high-level question. Of course, that doesn't really answer the, the, the well, how do you do that? Um, and without getting too technical, because I've got to admit, you know, I, I, I do have a research doctorate and a medical degree, but the science behind some of what goes on in the labs you know, is astounding. Um, so trying to simplify that of just, you know, explaining how we can detect these minute, tiny little bits of cancer DNA in a blood test. And from that, we can start to tell exactly the, the, the type of the cancer and how to treat it. Uh, and, you know, look at the, the presence of cancer and indeed whether it's getting better or worse, you know, just from a simple blood draw, you know, sort of when you talk through those terms with people, particularly people who have some knowledge of the space and know a little bit around medicine. Um, you know, I think you sort of, you know, their eyes tend to wide open and go, you can really do that. And it sounds a little bit science fiction, but, you know, there's these tiny little bits of DNA that are floating around in the blood. But, you know, the technologies are fantastic and being able to find them and not just find them you know, every now and again, repeatedly with very high sensitivity and specificity, really good quality, high quality tests, which of course you need because these are cancer patients whose lives depend on these. If you're talking maybe with a kid and they say, well, yeah, uh, Mr. Morris, but what do you do each day when you go into your office? What do you do? I think I've failed miserably to be able to explain it to my own two kids who still don't know what I do and actually say, well, that sounds really boring because you just sit on the phone and you go to meetings and you meet people, you know, don't you do anything? It's, um, but, you know, you know, clearly a part of the leadership role is, you know, it's not necessarily the things I do hands on. It's actually the teams that we have and how do you orientate the team? So, you know, whether it's setting a direction or, you know, helping to get rid of problems, blockers, you know, enable with resources, you know, keep keep the uh, the train on the tracks. So, you know, I think, you know, my, my daughter's pretty musical. So, you know, the concept of a conductor on the orchestra sort of, you know, sort of worked a little bit with her in terms of, you know, it's not playing any of the individual instruments, but it's making sure that they all work together. So it's probably the closest I've, I've been able to get to. What have you learned over the years about what management style fits you, is you, is just a natural thing for you? I think I'm still learning, to be honest. I, you know, I don't think a day goes by, I don't learn something um, around this and, you know, every interaction you have. You know, I think, you know, at the core of it, I think it's, you know, having a sense of direction of where do we want to go, hire good people, and then spend the time either keeping out of their way or removing their blockers is, is probably the, the underlying sort of thread of this. And, and that can mean different things to different people because, of course, every individual leader or, or person on the team is, is different. They all have their own skills and the, their own weaknesses as do I. And, you know, that's another part of it, of knowing where my weaknesses are and therefore for building out a team, you know, where are the areas that I need help in terms of making sure that we're rounded as a team. So I think there's an element of, you know, how do we make sure that as a group, we've got all the bases covered uh, rather than any one person having to do all of those. So, you know, I think I'm still learning. I'm still adapting Um, you know, learning how to do this the best. But I think that's an, you know, having good people, people you trust, 
and actually knowing, as I say, nobody's perfect and that's fine, but knowing where people's weaknesses are and making sure that, you know, across, it's back to the orchestra and the conductor analogy of knowing where you're strong and where you're not and, you know, adapting the team accordingly. So I think I can be direct when I need to be and sometimes you have to be direct, but, you know, sometimes consensus works. So it's flexing across those things, but making sure that, you know, at the end of the day, we make progress and, you know, we can do that. And, you know, if there is consensus, that's great. If not, somebody has to make a decision. And, you know, we, we keep things moving and I like things to move at pace. Many of those founders and CEOs I've spoken to in the US, when I ask them what the, their self-image was when they were young kids, they say things like, I remember saying, like, I want to be a baseball player. But interestingly, several of the UK people I've spoken with have said, well, there were these TV shows on that we used to see all the time about medicine and about doctors and scientists. And I thought, that's what I want to be. So what was, can you remember when you were that age, what you want, thought you wanted to be when you grew up? Certainly remember, you know, not quite the doctor stuff. I'd sort of growing up through the 1980s and I remember Top Gun was a big movie. So I certainly had a phase of wanting to be a fighter pilot. It sounded very glamorous and actually have a had a pilot's license and things very early on sort of I you know I worked through that you know I, I like learning you know so I like learning new things and I like making an impact and I like new challenges and uh, you know sort of you know as we solve a challenge you can move things forward and when I you know if I feel I've given as much as I can to something and I've you know I've given my best to something and you know sort of there, there may be a time for a new challenge at some point now I don't necessarily measure that in you know, there's an end goal per se, or, you know, a certain amount of time to spend in it. If it's fulfilling and enjoying it, making an impact, doing good, then, you know, that that's fulfilling. What do you say when people ask, who is Innovata? You know, it depends a little on who the audience is and degree of knowledge there, but really it comes back to, you know, a company trying to help patients with cancer. So to be better diagnosed, better managed, um, so to help that cancer journey. Um, if there's a decent level of some knowledge around the space, we can describe it, what do we do, but really then into how we have these, these suites of non-invasive products that uh, you know, means we can avoid lengthy, costly, you know, invasive discomfort from biopsies and other things um, by just taking a simple blood draw and we can rapidly get results based on the cancer DNA. And um, so, you know, there's some great technology, you know, we are, you know, at heart, you know, we came out of a technology uh, company we are, um, but really around the purpose of trying to do good in cancer. What's new at Innovata? So we're really excited about having had our first product now to the point of commercialization, so in the, the US market, uh, and we've recently announced uh, a commercial collaboration with a, another large company, a company called Neogenomics, who we will be um, working with and collaborating and partnering with to, to bring the technology to patients. Um, so that is you know, a key part for us of technology is just technology if it sits on the shelf, but it has to get to the patients ultimately. And you know, I think there's a piece here around you know, it's it's fairly rare that as a company you can do everything yourself. So actually looking about partnerships and I've always sort of had a strong ethos around collaboration and partnerships. So it's a natural, you know, uh, thinking for me in terms of how do we think about good partners that can help to accelerate our journey. So I think that's going to be really exciting for us and seeing that rollout. And we have got some great products coming through in the pipeline as well, not just in advanced cancer, but actually into early stage cancer and looking about how we can really detect whether potentially patients are cured or not cured by their surgery, for example, and need other treatments, again, from a simple blood draw. 
and also how we can monitor patients to see are they still free of disease or is there evidence of, of their cancers recurring again from a simple blood draw that can be done out in the community. So it's really sort of, you know, um, building up as a, as a pipeline. So, uh, you know, an exciting time for us with the first commercial product, but also really pushing forward that, that research and development side. So in terms of the the way the technology works and how we use with patients, the, the patient undergoes a simple blood draw, just the same as any other blood draw that you would. So a simple, usually in the arm veins, you know, standard needles, and then we have some special tubes that preserve the DNA and preserve the, the sample. Um, so two tubes of blood are taken. They're uh, sent through to us by courier. So usually overnight courier through to our laboratories uh, in Research Triangle Park, North Carolina. And when we get those, um, having, of course, catalogued them and, you know, uh, requisitioned them properly, you know, we basically extract the DNA from those blood samples. So, um, and it's specifically the, the, the DNA that's floating around in the blood and the little pieces of DNA. And then we have sequencing technologies that basically read that DNA and then our a series of uh, what we call our analytics basically interprets that data and actually compares back with known databases of DNA and enables us to say, you know, exactly what type of DNA are we seeing, which, you know, genomic alterations are present in those. And therefore, when you couple that information with knowledge on the patient, so for example, you know the patient has lung cancer, and then we have the DNA, you can put those two pieces together to potentially say, this is how you should be treating those patients, because we can identify certain drivers of the cancer that means they are uh, sensitive to, to different therapeutics, different drugs. So we take that information, we actually then match it back up again with the list of approved drugs, and also for clinical trials that are ongoing at any one point, and we compile then back into a report which we send back to the physician who can then use that to then best decide how to treat the patient be it a standard of care or maybe a clinical trial depending on uh, on what they have available and then looking at from a from a patient's point of view what does that process you just described mean for them compared to a traditional biopsy process for the lead product we have, which is for advanced lung cancer, so traditionally the patients would come in and have their diagnostic workup to be diagnosed with um, advanced cancer. Part of that would involve having what's known as an invasive tissue biopsy, where potentially a needle is passed through the chest wall. So generally the patients have to be sedated and they're uh, under a CT scanner or other imaging. And then a, a rather large needle is passed through the chest into hopefully hitting the, the tumor. And then a little bit of the tumor is, is pulled out, and so it's removed. And that is then sort of sent off to the laboratories to be checked out and to be um, be identified to hopefully give them the answer. You know, that is something that's invasive and doesn't often succeed. And sometimes patients will have to have a repeated procedure. Uh, sometimes there is enough sample from there to say that the patient does indeed have cancer, but not to do all the myriad of tests that we need to be able to tell, oh, well, which drug do you treat this patient with? So patients may have to have either, you know, a an empiric therapy where it's not guided by the science of of, of what's in their their cancer, or maybe even a, re, a repeat biopsy. So they have to go through the procedure again to have another go at this to try and get the the, the tissue. What we do is they do simply have a blood draw, which can be done as a, a standard blood draw by you know any healthcare provider. The blood sample is sent to us, and within seven days, they have the results back. So that's all there is for the patient. So it's all an outpatient procedure, no sedation. And whereas the standard 
scheduling a biopsy and uh, getting the results back takes up to three to four weeks in total. We get the results back from seven days from taking the blood draw. So not, not only on average do they get a, yeah, more likely to get the answer because we don't have the same failure rate as the, uh, the tissue biopsies, but they get the answer more rapidly. So these are patients who have advanced cancer and need their treatments, and uh, we hopefully get them to their therapies more rapidly. And that's the power of the liquid biopsy in this setting. And my understanding is that it is a snapshot, but some series of snapshots in time. And, and as cancers may evolve and, and tumors metastasize, that your process allows the physician and the patient to have a better understanding over time of what's going on in their body. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. So you can use the the, the liquid biopsy in different ways. So you can use it as the one-off snapshot to say, how do we treat? Um, as you say, the cancers continue to mutate and you can develop resistance mutations or other things that um, you know will confer resistance or sensitivity to other drugs. So you can repeat the testing. So it's a simple blood draw. You can repeat them. And part of the, the beauty of circulating tumor DNA is it's removed from the blood very, very quickly. That sounds somewhat counterintuitive, but what it means is you're getting a real-time snapshot of what is happening in the patient. So if you do a sample now and then you did a sample you know, in three months' time when the patient may have had some therapy and developed resistance, you can find the resistance mutations. So the old DNA is gone and what you're seeing is the new DNA. So it's very dynamic in that sense. So yes, absolutely. And you can also, and people are now starting to use these, rather than trying to look at the genetic makeup of cancer, but just looking at the presence of cancer. So, for example, if patients who have early stage cancer have undergone surgery, for example, to try and cure the cancer, if you take a blood sample, you know, a few weeks after the surgery when the patient's healed, if you can detect the circulating tumor DNA, then you know the patient hasn't been cured. They need some more treatment to be able to, to cure them, even if you can't see it on any CT scan or anything else. So the concept of residual disease detection. So it's something that we're now starting to see coming through. Uh, and also you can use those same sort of modalities to really track whether the cancer comes back in patients. So today, of course, patients will go and see their oncologist or other healthcare provider, potentially for up to five years after their, their surgery. They may have imaging, CT scans, other things to try and look for any evidence of recurrence. And only after three to five years of being cleared did people get the, the, the all clear that they, they're cured. Potentially, we can do something very similar with uh, blood samples in the future. So a simple blood sample done out in the community if it's clear from the CTDNA, then come back and have another blood sample in the, uh, you know, another six months or so. And the data is now starting to accumulate to show that you can detect recurrences earlier using circulating tumor DNA than you can with standard of care imaging. So potentially you can pick these recurrences up sooner and of course potentially prevent, you know, imaging and hospital visits and other things in patients who are otherwise well, who don't need to be going in and, and you know, inconveniencing the patient and also tying up healthcare resources. So quite a change to a much more minimally invasive way of managing patients. And, and, and perhaps not surprising, but as a science-led company in the early days, we were, you know, and still to this point, but early on, it was there was a lot of scientific folk. And as we were developing the first assay, you know, we're thinking about how is this differentiated? How is this going to work in the market? Um, a lot of the answers were quite technical, you know, around the sensitivity, the ability to detect DNA and a water level and such things. And you know, and it, you know that that has remained, and it's absolutely part of it. But it was very interesting as we got into the the commercial part in terms of really starting to roll this out. Very early on, what we were getting a lot of feedback was the turnaround time of the test. Being able to get these results in seven days was fantastic. 
Now, we, we always thought it was going to be important, but we didn't realize quite how important, but it was one of those. And it, again, that was a little bit of one of those. It's, it's a bit of an aha moment, but it's so obvious when you think about it and you stand back and you go, well, why wouldn't you want the results back quickly where these are patients who are dying of cancer who want to get onto the right therapy? Why wouldn't you want that quickly? So I don't know why we didn't think about it earlier. But anyway, it's one of those things that when the feedback starts coming through and you start hearing it and you hear it repeatedly and it comes back and it comes back again and somebody else says it and you think, there's probably something around this. And, you know, it's a good example how our differential and our positioning has come that it's not just the performance of the test, but it's also now the turnaround time is a, is a key part of that. Is there a way to talk about how the pipeline is a differentiator uh, for the company as a whole, the nature of the things that you're pursuing? The technology platform the company was founded on was designed to be the most sensitive, the most specific way of detecting cancer DNA in the blood. So um, the scientific founders did a great job, you know, tackling the scientific uh, problems there to create a platform that, you know, is indeed, uh, you know, extraordinary. You know, what we've then done as Innovata is turn that into products. So, you know, there's a mixture there of the, the technology platform, but also how is it being developed? Um, it's a standard test that everybody with lung cancer can have, and it looks for a standard set of markers that have been associated with certain drugs that are, are approved by the FDA and other uh, regulatory authorities. Our follow-up product for early stage cancer takes exactly the same platform, so the same strengths, but now we create individual assays to the patient's cancer. So we take the patient's cancer at the time of surgery, we profile it to find the, the, the exact mutations that that patient's cancer has, and we build a patient-specific test that looks for that signature. And when we combine the, uh, the strengths of our platform with that personalized approach, we can get incredibly sensitive assays. And you know, that's really why we can go into these earlier stages of cancer where there is even less DNA in the blood. There's potentially tiny, tiny amounts of DNA. So you need very, very sensitive assays, and that approach enables us to do it. So, you know, it's it's quite a quite a meld there of you know fantastic science, but also just the operations required to be able to do that, to be able to create these individual assays at scale, uh, and then of course to be able to then deliver those to to the patients. So I think it's the mix of the technology, but then also the you know the operations and other things, and you know a dedication to quality. So in terms of getting the quality assays very rapid turnaround times, easy to read reports. These are all part of what is the experience for the clinician, you know, in terms of making that easy. So, you know, we, we, we make the complex science simple. When you, when you lay out that vision, as you're starting to do with me here, I know often, all too often, those opportunities are very compressed. It may even be a 15-minute investor presentation. And afterwards, you draw a breath, you think, I've, I've said it clearly. And then afterwards, someone comes up to you and, and you realize, no, they didn't hear it the way I intended them to hear it. Some did, some didn't. Those who don't hear it clearly, those who bring a filter to it or misunderstanding, what do they typically misunderstand about Innovata? And then how do you help them to get an understanding of what your vision is? You know, some of the concepts that we have actually can get quite complicated very, very quickly. So I think one of the dangers is that people just get a little bit drowned in the science that you know we have to keep it simple enough for people so it's 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 judging sort of when when do people what's the right level of conversation and you know a lot of people who are in and around the industry have a certain level of knowledge but we're all still learning you know even of those who are steeped in this day in day out still there's an awful lot that we don't know so the people who are a little bit further removed know a little bit but know even less but think they know things so 
that's one of the challenges I think of there's so many things that we don't know and because it's a new technology in the field out in clinical practice again people haven't used these they're not as if these technologies have been around for 20 years and everyone has experiences so people get very colored by their initial experience and do they have a good experience do they have a bad experience does you know how does one test vary from a different one these are things that are very difficult to to talk about in the abstract and you know when you're very early on in the adoption of a technology you know, when people ask some of those questions, it's very difficult to give clear answers. And of course, medicine is, you know, practiced on evidence. So there's a lot of a lack of evidence in many of these places. So, you know, that's the challenge as well of how do we get the right level of scientific depth, but also recognize that there's so much we don't know. And, you know, trials need to be done and the data needs to be provided. So there's an awful lot of work still to do of, you know, we think we know a lot now, but I suspect in 10 years, when we look back, we'll realize how little we knew. What kind of partners are good partners for Innovata? I like to think of things where there are complementary skill sets or resources. So, you know, um, I referred earlier on to a, you know, a commercial partnership where, you know, we develop beta assays and got them through some early stages towards commercialization. But then, you know, the, the whole process of commercialization is, is, you know, then a different one. So we could choose to build that or we could choose to partner for that. So in this particular case, you know, we chose to partner. Um, and, you know, we both, I think you have to make very clear that, you know, you have alignment of goals that ultimately sort of what makes both parties successful, you know, there's an alignment there and also that both parties have to put some resource into this. So both parties need skin in the game, you know, part of the risk they share, but also there's a shared view of the goals that, um, you know, why, why you're doing something. And I think that just helps to make partnerships successful. But then, as I say, they, they come in many guises. You know, we do a lot of academic collaborations where we work with different academic groups to to study different areas. And of course, there, you know, we bring the technologies and the assays and, you know, some of the operations there. But of course, the clinicians bring some of those sort of the areas around the science and the medicine and, of course, access to patients, um, you know, which, again, is a, you know, an obvious partnership when you think about it. But one that I think, you know, ultimately, we're trying to get to the right answers and further the science, but neither group could do it on their own. So, you know, they, they work very well there. So, yeah, many and varied, um, as I say, from other diagnostic companies, academia, and the other one is with biopharma partners as well. So, you know, clearly this type of technology can be really useful for biopharmaceutical companies in terms of thinking, you know, how do they develop their drugs? How do they, um, they track the genetic makeup of cancers over time in their trials? How do they select patients into trials? How do you have the diagnostics that accompany the therapeutics to be able to, to guide their appropriate use? So there's a natural bedfellow there as well in terms of, you know, how uh, the biopharma and the diagnostics industry comes together. So, you know, my, my sense is that, you know, in fact, I'm, I don't think you could ever plan to do something like this and be successful if you were trying to do it on your own. I just don't see any way it could happen. It, by, by its nature, you know, science is generally a collaborative effort and, you know, therefore thinking where are those strong partnerships? Uh, where is there good alignment on, you know, mission and other things that we want to, to be successful? What's the connection between your work at the headquarters and your work when you're speaking with your colleagues at Research Triangle Park? It, it's no different. So it's exactly the same. You know, we have groups that are spread across both sides. You know, we work flexibly across both sides. So it, it's no different. It's, um, you know, it's exactly the same. Um, some, you know, areas of the business are con more concentrated in one site or the other. Some are spread equally across both. And our leadership team is spread across both sites that we have. So it's not a, a, a hierarchical um, sort of relationship between the sites at all. It's just happens to be two geographies where there's great talent and resources and skills that, you know, together we're all in Nevada. And 
and we're not you know we're not too big we're only about 75 people today so you know it's not too big that you know it's still personal enough that um you know whether it's on different sites different groups through different management layers that you know people know each other and uh, and interact so like to think we're very very flat in that sense you know having a laboratory in the us is a key part of that so you know it was always the intent that yes we spun out from cambridge you know as a handful of people but as we grew and came you know for the commercialization you know the us was always going to be important and you know we looked around um and actually you know the research triangle park is a fantastic area for um you know not just the biomedical innovation but there's a lot of information science and others there's a lot of it is companies in and around the space as well so there's a really interesting mix of the sort of biomedical with some of these other sort of skill sets um plus you know the the more general skill sets that I, that i mentioned in terms of tapping into talent there and a number of great universities in and around the triangle there of course so you look at it together and you know it's it seems a good place to be and you know looking on the financial side is not as expensive to operate in as perhaps as some of the other places in the US on you know sort of the bay area and boston so you know that you know overall it's a is a good mix for us and um the other one related to this is the the path through that we've had through reimbursement the area you know there is a group and um, that conduct these assessments a group um under the the palmetto uh, medicare mac who can conduct such assessments and we sit in their backyard so we naturally fall under their assessment process which has also helped us in terms of being able to to get the product through reimbursement and uh, to commercialization so overall uh, a really sort of good good place for us to be I know you're in the thick of it now, day to day, you're you're working on all the details that are required to, to make the next stage of the company successful. You've also talked about how you hope to help patients. Do you still get, do you have the time at this point in your directing the company, do you have the time still to th sit back to think, boy, if this works out the way I hope it does, I'm really going to, through this company, be able to do some good in the world. Or is that something you think about later on? You know, it's part of the reason why we, we get out of bed in the morning. So, um, you know, that, you know, it's very easy to get, you know, dragged down on the day to day of whatever issues happen to be. So, uh, you know, whether it's fundraising, technical, R&D projects, commercialising, you know, there's always something that, you know, you can be dragged into those details. But at the end of the day, you know, yes, solving those challenges is fulfilling, but actually it's it's that greater good that, that makes sense. So, um, you know, I'm not sure it's a sit back at the weekend and think about it, but I think a constant reminder that's there. And, you know, we have, as I mentioned, the sort of, you know, we have a, you know, a mission statements around transforming the lives of patients with cancer. So we have this up through the office and posters and things like this. So, you know, there's those sorts of reminders that are there. Um, and of course, you know, we, I mentioned we do a lot of collaborations with academia and working with clinicians. So of course, you know, you get that red, that ready feedback, and uh, you know, you you do have that sort of ongoing sort of touch point into uh, you know the day to day you know uh, lives of patients and clinicians. And then every now and again, you get you know sort of little extra little poignant reminders. I both remember, you know, remember a couple of years back we were at a big uh, lung cancer conference and. You know, we had a little little exhibition booth, uh, sort of very modest um, compared to some of the, the large stands that are around. But as I came around, one of my colleagues was there, and there was a lady crying on her shoulder who'd had, actually, she'd had been cured by early, uh, of her early stage lung cancer, but she'd had an invasive tissue biopsy and she'd had a collapsed lung and had some quite nasty complications and nearly died. And she was, you know, there sort of, you know, in tears, sort of, you know, this, this goes back five or six years ago, these technologies weren't available, but she was saying, look, had I had this at the time, how much a difference her life could have been. So those things that, you know, just, you know, are good reminders to, 
to how do we do those? And we periodically bring in, you know, external key opinion leaders or even patients we've done into to, to do almost like staff sessions in terms of, um, you know, questions and answers and other things that just maintains that connection, um, you know, between, you know, what we do day to day and, and the patients. What kind of people thrive at Innovata? We have a lot, you know, a lot of different skill sets, you know, when for, for a small company, we've got very technical, you know, we run, the, you know, assay development, you know, cutting edge science through to, you know, our operational labs, you know, and the focus on quality and being able to deliver the, the tests at scale through clinical trials and all our regulatory and into the more commercial part of the business. And then, of course, we have the usual finance, HR, all these other things. So we have lots and lots of backgrounds. Um, you know, the workload can be pretty high, you know, it's sort of because we're a small company and, you know, it does mean that we tend not to have 10 people in the same function. So, you know, where there is a peak, it, there isn't a natural buffer of things there. So I think people who like some of that challenge of there, I think people who like to actually make a difference. Um, I like to think of, you know, people who, you know, are, are natural problem solvers, because um, a lot of what we're doing are not things that, you know, we're copying from a, you know, a, a rule book and it's not a cookie cutter approach. So people have to solve problems that, you know, they need to be innovative. Um, and then I think that sort of that commitment to the patients and the quality and doing a good job, I think, is something that runs throughout as well. So I think all of those things and hopefully we have some fun along the way. So people who are, you know, people who are, you know, good colleagues and, you know, it's interesting, you know, certainly the, the sites we have where people will congregate and everybody has lunch together and sort of big communal tables and things like this of, you know, sort of, um, you know, it's it's not just work colleagues, but, but friends as well. So uh, hopefully it's a, a fun environment as well as you know, uh, intellectually and academically and, you know, professionally rewarding. Many of the founders and CEOs I've spoken with have said that they they have a high tolerance for ambiguity and some of you use the word chaos. Would you say it's a necessary or useful quality to be able to deal with a world of ambiguity if you're a, a biopharma executive? I don't know for sure, but I suspect it's probably true for an executive in any industry, um, let alone, you know, the biopharma one. And, you know, it's one of the parts that sort of as I look back, as I developed from, you know, junior physician in industry and have moved through different roles of increasing seniority, of the bit nobody tells you along the way is what you're dealing with varies. And actually, the, the questions become more and more ambiguous. And, and again, it's one of those things that makes sense when you think about it, because simple answers get answered by somebody. The ones that are more difficult get shunted up to the next level. They answer then the next layer of them. The more difficult ones get shunted. So eventually you get to, you know, and if you're in the CEO role, you know, everybody's answered all the questions that have an answer that you can, you know, possibly, you know, justify by science and everything else. And, you know, you're left with the ambiguous uh, ones to try and work through. And, and that's where it becomes down to judgment. And I think that's where, you know, I think then the team of people you've got and knowing, understanding their skills, you know, both, you know, strengths and weaknesses, uh, but also, you know, their judgment and how they work through and, you know, how do you take counsel from various different people. But yes, you know, everything is pretty much ambiguous of, uh, you know, that, that we deal with. And um, yeah, you have to be comfortable with that, I think, you know, and you, you have to be able to make good decision in there and not be haunted by it because then just recognize that some of them will be wrong, you know. So, you know, you can't beat yourself up, you know, if you make a good decision on the information you have and it turns out to be wrong, that's just life. You know, you've got to learn from it, move on. If you make a mistake, learn from it, don't make the same mistake again. But, you know, sort of a... I think it would be easy to be paralyzed by not being able to make a decision because there isn't an obvious answer. And I think that then just paralyzes the organization. So you've got to find a way to cut through that, but also do it in a way that 
I think then gives people confidence that it's not just a guess, and, you know, that there's actually some reason that people then feel confident to get behind whatever that decision is. And particularly when you're, you know, leading teams of scientists who always want to probe, well, why, why this, why that? And of course, that's where it gets more difficult with those, those ambiguous type of uh, scenarios. But, you know, I think that's one of, one of the skills of leadership, I think, of being able to deal with the ambiguity, make a reasonable decision, uh, not beat yourself too much up if you make a wrong one, learn from it if you make a mistake, and, uh, you know, sort of keep learning. Thanks for speaking with me today, Clive. Thanks, John. Been a pleasure. Right at the beginning of my conversation with Clive Morris, he told me there's no rule book of what to do. And something about me, I like doing things where there is no rule book. When there's no rule book to fall back on, it would be easy, as Clive said, to be paralyzed by not being able to make a decision because there isn't an obvious answer. After all, Clive points out that simple questions get answered by somebody else. And as CEO, you're left with the ambiguous ones to try and work through. And that's where it comes down to judgment. Clive goes on to say, you have to be able to make good decisions and not be haunted by it. Just recognize that some of them will be wrong. If you make a decision on the information you have, and it turns out to be wrong, that's just life. You've got to learn from it, move on. If you make a mistake, don't make the same mistake again. This seems to be a recurring quality with many founders and CEOs who have been my guest on BioBoss. A combination of intellect and humility that links to curiosity and innovation. As Clive said at the end of our conversation, we think we know a lot now, but I suspect in 10 years, when we look back, we'll realize how little we knew. I'm John Simbley. You're listening to BioBoss.